sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about some revelations about the Russiagate myth. Also going to be discussing U.S. President Joe Biden's recent trip to Taiwan, what that means, excuse me, his recent trip to Asia and what that means for the, the new Cold War. But it definitely involves Taiwan. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, today is primary day in three states, Georgia, Alabama, and Texas. The biggest race may be in Georgia, as the Republican primary is clearly a referendum on the Trump brand and whether it holds power over the GOP that Trump hopes it does. Former Vice President Mike Pence took to the stump for Republican Governor Brian Kemp taking sides against his former boss, Donald Trump. But Pence also took aim at the presumptive Democratic challenger for Governor Stacey Abrams, saying, quote, I'm here because Brian Kemp is the only candidate in tomorrow's primary who has already defeated Stacey Abrams, whether she knows it or not. And I'm here because Stacey Abrams can never be governor of the great state of Georgia, end quote. Then Trump-backed candidate and former Senator David Perdue is trailing Kemp badly, so he thought a little bit of racism against Abrams might help him out some. Perdue said that Abrams was, quote, demeaning her own race, end quote, in uh, bringing up comments that he decided to hash up from 2018 uh, in a campaign speech that Abrams made at Georgia Southern University when she said that people shouldn't have to go into agriculture and hospitality to make a living. And she went on to say in that speech that as governor, she promised to create a lot of different jobs. Now, Purdue didn't mention that last part. And yes, it was kind of tone deaf for Abrams to make that comment in a large farming community in southeast Georgia. But if you consider that black farmers have been systematically pushed out of farming by having their land stolen, being denied loans and such, you get how cherry picky the Republican outrage about that comment really is. But that didn't stop Purdue from going on to say about Abrams that she said that Georgia is the worst place in the country to live. Hey, she ain't from here. Let her go back to where she came from if she doesn't like it here. Abrams' family moved to Georgia when she was in high school. And as for Abrams saying that Georgia is the worst state to live in, she tweeted some statistics. Georgia is first in the country in maternal mortality. First in the country in new HIV diagnoses, second in the country in the most uninsured citizens, sixth in the country in infant mortality, ninth in the country in the rate of gun violence, 48th in the country in mental health services provided, and 50th in the country in minimum wage. Those are not numbers that Georgia should brag about, but Brian Kemp is promising to keep Georgia the best place to live, work, and raise a family, and he'll work hard to keep it that way. Only if your family doesn't fall under any of the statistics that Abrams cited, I guess. Kemp is slated to easily beat Purdue in the Republican primary, which would set up a rematch between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams for the governor's race. And I can't even call that when the gerrymandering and voter suppression is so deep in that state. 
And I do not know how Herschel Walker is actually a legitimate contender for the Georgia Senate race, but he is. And if he wins, he'll take on Raphael Warnock in November. I don't even know what else to say about that. I'm a political analyst, not a magician. I can't fix or even explain that stupidity. In Arkansas, Sarah Sanders, former White House press secretary under Trump and daughter of former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, will probably win the gubernatorial primary, which will set her on a path to vie for the governorship in a state that has a history of electing Democratic governors until recently. And should she win, she'll be the first woman to leave the state. And that, honestly, that's not saying a lot, to be honest. And then there's the race in Texas, where incumbent Henry Quellar, the last anti-abortion Democrat in Washington, is being challenged by progressive Jessica Cisneros. Quellar is getting millions of dollars from pro-Israel groups that are backing all the centrist Democrats in the primaries to help them defeat their progressive challengers, while Cisneros got a boost from Emily's List and funding from Justice Democrats and Working Families Party. There is a Republican primary between George P. Bush, the grandson of George H.W., who will probably lose to A.G. Ken Paxton. But all eyes really are on who will win the Democratic primary because the outcome of that race will reflect the strength of the progressive campaigns against centrist Democrats. And honestly, I think it might signal the future of the so-called progressive caucus in the Democratic Party. Y'all, imagine my shock when I read the editorial board op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today that read, Hillary Clinton did it. I couldn't believe that the Wall Street Journal editorial board actually admitted that the Russia-Trump collusion story was a whole lie cooked up by the Clinton campaign. I mean... I know you know this because we've been telling you this since 2016, but the Wall Street Journal admitting it? Oh my God, I don't know how to act. The editorial board came to that conclusion after testimony by Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, in the trial of Michael Sussman this past Friday, revealed that Hillary Clinton approved the decision to give unverified information about alleged links between Donald Trump and this alleged Russian alpha bank to reporters, even though no one on the campaign had the expertise to verify the data. Mook testified that he, policy advisor Jake Sullivan, who is now President Joe Biden's national security advisor, leading the campaign of lies about Russia in Ukraine, communications director Jennifer Palmieri, and campaign chairman John Podesta, they all decided to give the Alpha Bank claims to a reporter, and Hillary Clinton approved the plan to publicize the unverified Alpha Bank claims. After the article was published in Slate magazine, Jake Sullivan said that the Slate story, quote, could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow. Hillary Clinton 
tweeted Sullivan's statement and said, computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. But computer scientists hadn't uncovered a doggone thing. The whole thing was cooked up. And even the Wall Street Journal editorial board had to conclude that, quote, the Clinton campaign created the Trump alpha allegation, fed it to a credulous press that failed to confirm the allegations, but ran with them anyway, then promoted the story as if it was legitimate news. The campaign also delivered the claims to the FBI, giving journalists another excuse to portray the accusations as serious and perhaps true, end quote. The Wall Street Journal editorial board said that the rest of the media would probably ignore the Sussman trial and the truly bombshell revelations about Clinton's Trump-Russia collusion lies coming out of it. Well, now they know how we've felt since 2016. Now you know, Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the club. I guess we tried to tell you. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice L.A. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, Don, (laughs) the mainstream media seems like it's just now catching up to something that um, alternative journalists and media platforms have literally been saying for years. And that's that the whole Russiagate myth was just that a, a myth, a lie, a political tool that was obviously being wielded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democrats. But specifically, um, there's been a article that's been published on the Wall Street Journal entitled Hillary Clinton Did It. And so what this is all surrounding is uh, the test testimony of one Robbie Mook, who was the Hillary Clinton campaign manager back in 2016, uh, where he basically testified that Hillary Clinton personally approved uh, the planting of this story about a relationship between Donald Trump and uh, Alpha Bank uh, in Russia that I believe sort of became the seed uh, for this whole narrative of Trump-Russia collusion, which just had, I think, just a serious deleterious uh, uh, impact on the politics and political consciousness inside the United States that we're literally continuing to live through right in this moment. And so, I mean, I personally feel that, uh, you know, um, you know, folks with our uh, analysis have already sort of been vindicated on this issue. But I'm just wondering how your how this is sort of striking you in this moment uh, now that the damage of Russiagate has already been done. Yeah, and and quite a bit of damage it is too. Uh, the, if you look at the fact that we're at the precipice of nuclear war with Russia, it's it's hard to imagine uh, something that could be worse as a legacy of a failed election campaign. Um, 
you know, we were reporting on this stuff. I, I, I was covering the, this election very closely. As you guys know, uh, Professor Tony Montero and I went to both of the conventions. We interviewed people, you know, in Cleveland at the Republican convention, you know, and the people in Philly at the Democratic convention, witnessed all kinds of stuff, reported on it contemporaneously. And, you know, this whole myth was being uh, assembled and perpetrated uh, at that time. It, it, the report, for example, in Sputnik uh, about the intercepted intelligence um, that supposedly provided some context for this was the 26th of July, 2016. That was during the Democratic National Convention. And we heard this being rolled out at the convention from, from the dais, from the stage, uh, with and and even before that, you remember Matt Lauer's um, interview. It was sort of like a serial interviews that passing as a debate uh, with uh, Trump and Clinton. Clinton uh, said something that if Trump is elected, it'd be like uh, Christmas in the Kremlin or some such thing. She, you know, the the whole myth that Trump was uh, president of Vladimir Putin's puppet. Um, that he was going to be installed and at the service, you know, by and at the service of uh, Russia's government, that they were selling that even before they got to this. And this thing that's supposed to be a primary piece of evidence that helped this disease jump species from, you know, the, uh, say, like if you're talking about monkeypox, uh, the monkey press, like Slate and, you know, all these other underground corporate outlets into the, you know, so-called human press, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and, you know, NBC, ABC, etc. This was the vehicle. If you take a look at the New York Times the week before the election, which I just did, you know, preparing for this conversation, uh, and uh, we lived through it, so I remember it. Uh, you know, Slate publishes this article uh, that seems to uh, say that says there's a link between Alpha Bank, which is, you know, among other things, a lender to people like Trump, who's a developer. There's a link between them and the Trump campaign, which says basically Vladimir Putin's oligarchs are, you know, paying off Trump. That's the, the, not even the subtext. Some some of the newspaper articles essentially said that. That was published October 31st. The election was November 8th. That's eight days later. In the intervening period, it's not in just Slate. It's in the New York Times. There's four articles about this. Between uh, November October 31st and November 8th, just in the New York Times, um, also the Wall Street Journal, and again, all these other CNN and MSNBC were beaten on it 24-7. And this afterwards gives birth to this whole – the investigation – that took place, including an attempted impeachment over, over the entire time he was in office that, among other things, left him unable to try to normalize relations with Russia, which was one of the things that he promised to do. And so here we are now about to have a nuclear war, perhaps. I hope not. But it sure as hell looks possible. And and this is it's definitely not, not even a child of this thing. It's like a clone of what was done in, in 2016. Yeah, Don, you know, it's interesting that this entire trial, this trial of Michael Sussman has been going on uh, not too far from here, right, in Virginia for a couple of weeks. And you're not seeing any coverage of it in corporate media, obviously because everything that's come out in this trial has completely debunked 
all of the things that, uh, you know, these these allegations of uh, Trump collusion with Russia, it, it pretty much debunks everything. They've, the, the FBI agents have testified saying that they saw this evidence uh, allegedly about these Alpha Bank uh, 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 connections and, and came to the conclusion pretty quickly, actually, that it was really just a bunch of results of Internet searches using the word Trump <laughs> and Russian yeah. bank. <laughs> and I mean, the fact that this is the kind of uh, information, if you want to call it, this was the smoking gun. This was what was presented to the FBI and to Slate and other media outlets as the the supposed evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. I mean, it's one thing to say that, you know, the FBI didn't come out and repudiate this evidence immediately. That That's one issue. But then the other issue, Don, is the fact that nobody in these media outlets decided that they should verify any of this information, which... Uh, according to the testimony from the trial, I mean, it was the, the, the you didn't need a computer scientist to yeah. verify any of this information. All you had to do was really look at it. Right. And, and and that clearly was not done. So I, I think, of course, the, the testimony of, of Robbie Mook uh, implicates Hillary Clinton in absolutely, you know, giving the approval for this for this lie to be uh, trotted out to the media. But how much more do you think this indicts the entire media apparatus? Not just the media apparatus. OK, I'm looking at the, the story, for example, that's linked from the Sputnik story about this um, at the Hill. Here's one paragraph. On July 28, 2016, then CIA director John Brennan briefed President Obama on Hillary Clinton's plan to tie Trump to Russia as, quote, a means, this is from a memo, a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server, closed quote. Obama was reportedly told how Clinton approved, quote, a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian security service, closed quote. After that, for months, everywhere, government officials, the media, FBI investigations, CIA, 17 flavors of intel agencies are all talking about, and then millions and millions of dollars in an investigation and, and everything else from every corner of the government, corporate media, and every institution in, in the country as if this thing were real, when everyone knows, particularly the people quarterbacking it, that it wasn't. And it's, it's, it's portrayed now as if this was this one political party and, and construct, you know, trying to block a, another one, even an insurgent one to the whole. OK, fine. That's that's part of it. But this was really a propaganda war that and perhaps it's going to be a nuclear war against the people of the United States. Because we were not allowed to know what was going on for the election and just about everyone in interest from the government to the media to corporations that funded all of this were working together in a coordinate fashion to propose to post this fantasy as reality. And it's a fantasy that's now enabled a war on Russia's borders. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this this just. It makes me think, Don, about how this is such a tried and true tactic with the United States. 
if we look at Russiagate, if we look at the narrative of weapons of mass destruction, the Naira testimony, all these sorts of things, this country loves to blatantly lie to its people and the world as a pretext, usually for war, destructive blood-soaked wars that impact countries and people for years and years afterwards. And it's almost like they don't care or aren't concerned about whether it's ever actually exposed this truth because, you know, by the time it's all said and done, similar to the to Russiagate, you know, the damage is already there. And uh, I, I do think it's important, as we have been, to sort of focus on how um, the media just uncritically republished all of these things. And then when you had, uh, you know, independent journalists like, you know, for instance, Aaron Mate, who I feel like has, has probably done some of the, the best work debunking uh, uh, Russiagate. And, you know, he's someone who does not work. He does not report for a, uh, a Russian media outlet, but he's attacked similarly as uh, a Putin puppet and all these sorts of things. I mean, it's ditto for everybody with the same uh, uh, analysis. Similar, if we want to talk about the, the Ukraine war, in terms of if, if, if you ever attempt to give a full historical political context to, to the war in Ukraine, well, then you're seen as uh, justifying or supporting the invasion. And so what we're really talking about is the tactic of thought killing in the United States. And the reason why it's so important to do that is because it creates a susceptible population for the U.S. government to do what, whatever it wants to do. But within that, they're being told that they're being informed. And, you know, I don't even know if I have a question within that. I just don't think we realize how deep the propaganda is in the U.S. Yeah. You know, people are primed for it. First of all, the education system does not excel at teaching people how to think critically. Um, it certainly does not explain the legal and political functioning of the political economy in the United States. Uh, and that's including for people that get uh, advanced uh, degrees, doctorates, PhDs and uh, master's degrees in you know postgrad degrees in economics, political science, etc. The average person uh, who has a high high school education and maybe uh, two or four years at a state university is completely bewildered when they confront the you know politics in the United States and so when and and also how the media operates people don't understand the business model they don't understand the relationship uh, between uh, people who are in the news press releases the whole m mechanism of how all of that works and also the editorial uh, control that exists and the uh, unity of uh, identity of ownership of the media across the six or seven major platforms that exist now. And so whatever comes out of their TV set is bewildering to people who are already bewildered in the world that they've been turned loose in. And it's something that most people around the world, whether they're in developed countries or undeveloped countries, notice about Americans. And you have to come to the conclusion knowing the world that existed here in the 1960s, where it was quite different, uh, that this was an active project that was basically a war that was conducted against the American people that appears to have been fairly successful. Yeah, definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about Joe Biden, Taiwan, and the new Cold War. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University and an activist with the organization Pivot to Peace. Professor Hammond, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, glad to be here this morning. Absolutely. And we're glad to have you, Professor. And of course, here recently, a U.S. President Joe Biden embarked on a tour of Asia. And while he was in Japan, uh, he made some remarks about uh, the U.S. and how it would respond to a uh, military intervention by China into Taiwan. Uh, he said, quote, we agree with the one China policy. We signed onto it and all the intended agreements made from there. But the idea that that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region and be another action similar to what happened in Ukraine. And uh, he was standing alongside Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who echoed Biden's sentiment, saying, quote, unilateral attempts to change the status quo by force like in Ukraine should never be tolerated in the Indo-Pacific. Now, in the time since, the White House has uh, uh, walked back uh, uh, Biden's comments. And this is not the first time that Biden has uh, made these kinds of remarks about Taiwan. And and what he said, that little quote that, that I read there is pretty striking to me because on the one hand, he's saying that the U.S. Uh, still upholds the one China policy, meaning that the U.S. government understands that there is one China and Taiwan is a part of it. But in the same breath, uh, uh, basically says that it will be willing to uh, support Taiwan in the event of a quote unquote uh, uh, intervention and talking about taking it by force. Well, you can't take something by force if, if it's already a part of you. And so I think there's a lot to get in here in a number of ways, Professor, but I'm just curious how you're sort of analyzing this and what do you think it means for, you know, not only U.S.-China relations, but also the one-China policy itself? Well, I think, you know, it's this, as you say, this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, uh, Joe Biden has been uh, evidently confused in public on, on a number of occasions, and certainly not only on this question, but uh, his statements are, are blatantly contradictory internally. You know, I mean, he says he says both things at once, that we are committed to the one China policy. We're going to uphold the legal agreements that the United States has, the, uh, the communiques that go back 50 years, you know, about uh, China and, and uh, the recognition by, by the world that, uh, that there is one China and Taiwan is part of that. So he'll say that. He'll reiterate those formal uh, commitments and obligations, as he did when he spoke uh, last November with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, but then he turns right around and makes these other statements that, that are completely uh, opposed to that, talking about, you know, uh, defending Taiwan and protecting Taiwan from invasion. And would the United States get directly militarily involved? And, and he actually said yes on that. Um, you know, this it, it, it reflects uh, at, at 
you know, on the one hand, perhaps just just personal confusion, you know, his his uh, you know questionable mental state. Who knows? Uh, but it it also reflects a very difficult, uh, contradictory position for the United States, which is that we are legally committed to uh, to one proposition, while everything that our politicians and our military leaders do, kind of. Uh, in in practice, uh, sometimes behind the scenes, like sending secret advisors to to Taiwan, uh, but often out out in public, uh, you know, go go exactly in the opposite direction. The United States has been consistently trying to provoke China, uh, violating China's uh, uh, you know uh, it, it territorial integrity by sending warships through the Taiwan Straits. Uh, violating China's uh, sovereignty by by a whole range of, of uh, interventions, uh, either clandestine, like in the uh, Hong Kong case, or, or overt uh, in in various ways. You know, it, it's just a contradictory situation, and and this is this is the latest example of it. Uh, but uh, it's it's by no means unique. Yeah, and also I should mention that uh, even today, uh, President Biden has uh, further clarified his comments, noting that, you know, the policy of, quote, strategic ambiguity uh, towards Taiwan as it concerns the U.S. uh, is still very much in place. And I feel like this is a phrase that we hear a lot. And I think it's been a policy of U.S. presidents for uh, a while now. And I was hoping you could break down uh, just what strategic ambiguity is and how it factors into U.S.-China relations. Well, I think that that the term strategic ambiguity somebody somebody some clever you know policy wonk came up with that because it puts a, a gloss of uh, of sort of uh, cleverness or intentionality on uh, on this contradictory situation strategic ambiguity you know the idea that it's strategic it's part of our of our deep plan it's part of our our way of handling the world and manipulating the world in in America's own interests and all this you use that term and then ambiguity means we don't really know what the hell we're doing uh, and you know, so we want to play it both ways, and and of course, that's that's what President Biden and and his predecessors have have uh, done on uh, on on many many occasions. So I think you know that's that's something they can trot out in the aftermath of one of these gaffes that Biden commits and say, oh well, it's really just strategic ambiguity. You know, it sounds like you know confusion or misunderstanding or you know talking out of both sides of your mouth, but. It's actually strategic ambiguity. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's an attempt to to spin that in a way that uh, that you know makes us look like we're really the ones calling the shots here. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know that Biden can actually claim uh, strategic ambiguity, or anybody trying to defend his ridiculous comments can claim that when he went on to say that deterring China from taking the island, uh, Taiwan, was one reason why Russia needs to pay a dear price for the conflict with Ukraine. That makes no logical sense to me. Maybe somewhere in his fevered mind it does, but. I mean, Professor, can you explain why he thinks the two are connected other than, you know, the U.S. and the EU and NATO will have started both of those conflicts if anything does happen with Taiwan? But other than that, what what in the world is he talking about? Well, uh, curiously enough, uh, it does seem that when he makes those kinds of comparisons, uh, people who are who are paying any kind of attention will will exactly ask that question because it seems that he's saying, look, you know, we managed to push Russia to the point where they had to act, where they had to take these measures in Ukraine, 
you know, e- even at the even at the cost that they are, uh, you know, enduring for that. Uh, and and so, you know, maybe we can maybe we can poke China, provoke China to a sufficient point uh, that they're going to have to respond. And then and then, you know, we can inflict some further damage on them. We can put more sanctions on them. We can, you know, further demonize them. Uh, you know, it, on the one hand, again. Uh, it's it's not really all that ambiguous. It these are provocations. These are attempts to push China towards some some kind of of more open confrontation uh, with the United States, which is far from anything that China wants. China's not the one rattling sabers and saying, "Oh, we're going to grab Taiwan." You know, we get out of the way. China's going about its business. President Xi has said on a number of occasions that. You know, what China wants is to see the Taiwan issue resolved in its own time, in its own way, by the Chinese people themselves on both sides of the straits. It's an internal question for China, not something that foreign countries really have anything to to do or, or say about, you know. So why they have their, uh, you know, why the Americans have their tights in a twist over this is, 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 you know, it's clearly not coming from China. It's something that this is the American policy of trying to, you know, preserve its its global hegemony, trying to hang on to a dominant position that it has held in the world for for some time, uh, but which is slipping away as uh, as other countries around the world, not just China, but other countries around the world, uh, you know, seek out their own their own self interest, their own best uh, uh, practices, and their own cooperation with one another. Yeah. And Professor, I was reading an analysis of this whole situation on uh, the Global Times, of course, a Chinese news outlet. And I want to read uh, just a a small excerpt from this that, that I think ties some of this together well. It says the U.S. is promoting a cognitive battle by trying to conflate the Ukraine issue with the Taiwan question and to deny China's sovereignty over the island of Taiwan. And they uh, then quote uh, someone named Sung Ching Hao, who's a research fellow from the Center for International Security and Strategy of Tsinghua University. And uh, soon said, quote, however, Ukraine and the island of Taiwan are completely different. Yet by deliberately conflating the two, the U.S. is trying to mislead Asia Pacific countries and make them think that the Asia Pacific region is at risk of a similar conflict. Such statements can add legitimacy to the U.S.'s Asia Pacific strategy and its interference in the Taiwan question. And see, I'm of the opinion that China, as it pertains to the war in Ukraine, I I feel like China has kind of been uh, in terms of the U.S., kind of been lingering on the back burner strategically in terms of the the, the the U.S. government, the corporate-owned media, and their emphasis on it in different ways. But now we've reached a moment where it feels like the U.S. is sort of trying to bring together the two— uh, how could I describe it? The two sort of uh, fields of battle, if you will, as it pertains the new Cold War, which, of course, is aimed at these countries that the U.S. sees as its rivals, Russia and China. And so how do you see um, this whole issue of Taiwan connected with uh, the U.S.'s stance towards uh, this proxy war in Ukraine and uh, the geopolitical ripple effects therein? Well, it, you know, obviously the the Taiwan question is is in some ways the easiest issue uh, to for the Americans to try to manipulate, uh, in part because it it has some 
sort of public uh, awareness within the United States. Most Americans, I think, have some idea uh, about Taiwan. It may not be a very clear idea. It may be a wholly mistaken idea, but it's not completely unfamiliar in the sense that they recognize the, the term and things like that. They know the name of a that's the name of a place. They probably know it's an island, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, so Taiwan is, in some ways, it's very convenient for the Americans. Um, it is, of course, a completely different situation. Uh, you know, whatever, however we may view uh, the, the conflict that's taking place between uh, Russia, Ukraine, the Donbass region, all that stuff that's going on, uh, it, that's a completely different set of, of circumstances than, than the case in, in, with Taiwan, because Taiwan, on both sides of the straits, everyone agrees there's one China and Taiwan is part of it. There's some disputes about, you know, who the legitimate government is. Uh, but the vast majority of people in the world, the vast majority of states in the world, recognize the People's Republic of China as the government of that unit, of that entity. So it's a completely different uh, situation. And, and as, as Sean, as you said a little while ago, you know, how can you be accused of forcibly taking something that's already yours? It's like if I if I pick up a plate on my table, am I forcibly taking something? No, it's just part of you know, my stuff. Uh, so that's that's another you know that's another way to, to that's another thing to bear in mind with all this. But the U.S. is using Taiwan. It wants to use Taiwan as a as a sort of blunt instrument to keep bashing away at China in the hopes that that will line up uh, other countries, other people around the world to support America's hegemonic role, to support America's dominant role in global affairs. They're not having a very good time of that. Uh, I, just this morning, I was reading that you know the, they had this meeting of the so-called Quad, uh, including India, you know, and and South Korea and Japan, uh, and that uh, they had they're having a hard time getting uh, getting complete agreement even there. Uh, they wanted to make an announcement about a new defense pact, uh, kind of a kind of a proto uh, Asian NATO or something, uh, but India wouldn't even agree to that, and they they uh, they couldn't include Taiwan in that. They said, oh, but that's a special thing. We'll handle that one-on-one, you know. Uh, so there, it's clear that they can't build this consensus, even using, you know, the, the, the instrumentality of Taiwan and this bogus comparison with the situation in Ukraine. Uh, you know, the American uh, vision, if you will, for, for the Indo-Pacific, as they like to call it now, uh, is faltering, and uh, and and you know these these missteps, these these instances of misspeaking by by Biden, and then all the walk back uh, that has to go on, and and the the invocation of strategic ambiguity. This is it's the United States is kind of flailing around trying to trying to create the kind of situation that it wants in 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 with Taiwan and China and across the Pacific, but it's not uh, it's it's not really working out all that well for them. Yeah, I got to say, I don't know if there's another American politician in recent history that has had to do more walkbacks, that has had more, quote unquote, gaffes and that has had to go on apology tours more than uh, Joseph Robinette Biden, both before and after he uh, became president of the United States. But you make a couple of good points, Professor. Number one, when you talk about how the U.S. is struggling to uh, develop this regional anti-China um, con- consensus 
in a way because these countries, and I think India is a great example of this, these countries are are basically choosing to uh, pursue their own national interests. I mean, I think certainly they want a good relationship with the U.S., but they understand there's benefits and advantages of having good relations with uh, China as well. And the U.S., as of yet, has not been able, I think, to um, successfully coerce uh, enough of them into that camp. And, and I definitely think you're right to sort of describe how the U.S. wants to use Taiwan to bludgeon China in this way, to sort of, uh, you know, slow in any way they can China's rise. And, and I'm just not sure how successful they can really be with that. But I'm also curious about the role of Japan in all of this. You know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, these original statements, you know, the sort of source of this latest hubbub took place in Japan while uh, Biden is there with uh, Fumio Kishida. I mean, a part of me wonders if maybe the Japanese government is trying to, you know, raise its own uh, station in the world. But I mean, what do you think are the the, the motivations here uh, uh, with Japan, you know, as it regards this whole China issue, Professor? Well, of course, Japan, you know, Japan has this long history since World War II with the United States, the, the mutual or the defense agreements that the United States, you know, assumes the, the responsibility, the burden, as they like to think of it, uh, you know, of defending Japan. Uh, uh, that, of course, uh, evolved in the wake of, of, you know, Japanese aggression during World War II. But, uh, you know, that that meant that has meant that the United States, of course, the United States still has tens of thousands of troops stationed on Japanese soil. Uh, it, uh, you know, Japan is, is probably almost more than any other country uh, under the American uh, umbrella or under America's wing, however, whatever sort of metaphor you want to use. But, um, you know, uh, Japanese politicians can't really stray too far from the American line. Uh, they need to be subordinate to American interests, although they have to spin things in ways that, that try to make them look more autonomous. Uh, but all of that is simply the preservation of, of uh, you know, Japan's special relationship with the United States. So it's no surprise that, you know, Biden goes off to Asia and, of course, wants to have this kind of meeting with Japan, wants Japan, you know, to the Japanese premier to stand there beside him. Uh, so it looks like such a united front. It's interesting, though, that that the 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 statements, the formal statements that were issued after these a couple of different meetings, trying to forge these uh, this new uh, quad type alliance, um, they, the United States couldn't even get those four countries to agree to a statement which explicitly condemned uh, Russia, doesn't even mention Russia by name, or China. Uh, it's this very vague terminology, this phraseology of, well, we don't think anybody should disrupt the uh, the sovereignty of other countries. Well, of course, we all agree with that, you know, but who's actually disrupting the sovereignty of other countries? What about the United States? Why don't we read this statement as being critical of the United States? Obviously, because the United States is the one, you know, crafting it and putting it out. But they couldn't even get these four countries, these other three handpicked countries, to sign on to an explicit uh, engagement with opposing Russia and China. Uh, so, again, I, I just see this uh, this trip as, as in some ways kind of an embarrassment for Biden uh, and an embarrassment for American policy in that region. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to ask, Professor, was <laughs> it was a question about language, because it seems that the U.S. 
is is intent on framing this within a region called the Indo-Pacific. It seems like China and others uh, may prefer Asia-Pacific. And, you know, I, I may just be reading too much into things or, or placing uh, a relevance or in meaning on things where they aren't necessarily, but I can't help but notice that difference. And I think that, you know, beyond just the slight difference in words, it, it feels like it speaks to a fundamental uh, contradiction in terms of uh, uh, strategy and really worldview uh, when you look at how it plays out. So, I mean, what is your view on how the U.S. sort of wields this concept of the Indo-Pacific as opposed to how we see Asia-Pacific used elsewhere? Well, I think I think that's a really, really insightful question because, uh, you know, the that, that preface, Indo, uh, of course, that has its own history, uh, Indonesia, Indochina. Uh, you know, Southeast Asia historically has been a zone where the 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 cultural, how shall we say, the cultural spheres uh, of uh, of South Asia and East Asia have met and interacted and and influenced that region in various ways, and so geographically. Uh, that that Indo prefix has been attached to uh, at least the, those two regions I just mentioned, Indochina, Indonesia. Using the phrase Indo-Pacific, in a sense, carves out um, China from that uh, that concept. I mean, you can you can of course spin uh, Japan, even South Korea, the Korean Peninsula, as projecting out into the Pacific in a way. That's very different from from China's geographic position. When when China or or most people talk about you know the Asia Pacific region, obviously they're talking about East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the islands across the Pacific. It's much more inclusive. It's much more comprehensive. The use of the term Indo Pacific, I I totally agree, is is an effort by the United States to sort of psycholinguistically, if that's not too elaborate, uh, uh, to construct this image that that explicitly marginalizes and indeed excludes China. And the obvious reason for that is that their ultimate purpose is to surround, contain, constrain, and if possible, you know, destroy China. So uh, that's a doomed mission. That's a, a, it's a fool's errand. But that is what the United States is hoping to achieve. Definitely. But we thank you so much, Professor Hammond, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and the co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. As always, great to be back. Thank you. Definitely. Always good to have you, Chris. And, you know, uh, Twitter uh, has introduced its crisis misinformation policy. And I have to say that when you read what they consider, you know, some of the most severe 
violations of this policy and the sort of thing that is going to warrant a warning that people will have to click through to get to a link or to get to something that's posted. I mean, it seems a lot like to me, like they've cast a broad net um, over people who post uh, opinions that don't square with the Washington consensus. But uh, I was hoping you could sort of explain some of the details of this misinformation policy, uh, Chris, and what do you think it portends? I mean, not only for our current moment, but I think even uh, uh, heading into the future. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, Twitter last week announced this new policy, the crisis misinformation policy, as you mentioned. And in their blog post, they explain and actually show an image of what a tweet that they believe violates this policy will look like. They say they will preserve the tweet, uh, you know, for historical purposes. Um but they're going to put a notice over it, and then you have to click a button to view it. It'll say, this tweet violated Twitter rules on sharing false or misleading info that might bring harm to crisis-affected populations. And they're actually very clear about where this is coming from. They say the first iteration of this is focused on international armed conflict, starting with the war in Ukraine. That is a direct quote from this misinformation policy blog post. So it's very clear that they are concerned about what they believe to be misinformation coming out on the ground about uh, the conflict in Ukraine. And I'm certain, you know, everyone is concerned about misinformation. But the problem is, how do you deem credibility? Who is determining what is misinformation and what is not, in particular in situations where things are very rapidly unfolding? And if you are not there on the ground, um, if you are relying on you know, mainstream news, or even if you're relying on special feeds from the State Department to figure out what is real or not, you are not actually having the the re- reality, you know, on the ground, um, you know, reflected in what you are deeming misinformation. Like we have seen people already who just question, who point out inconsistencies uh, with, you know, for example, what happened in Buka, you know, be kicked off Twitter. I'm, you know, talking of course uh, about Scott Ritter and others. Um, Others have been, you know, kicked off PayPal and, and so many other services, and we talk about that all the time. And now Twitter is making this an official policy that they're saying that they will be determining, and it's not clear who they're going to be working with to determine that, but they will be determining who it, or what is information and what is misinformation uh, in order to further control the narrative on the site that we all rely on every day for, you know, for entertainment and for news. Yeah. And, you know, Twitter's uh, kind of a nefarious and, and murky disinformation policy is not the only news in regard to uh, how uh, the disinformation is handled in the public sphere, particularly with the government, because uh, the Department of Homeland Security new disinformation board actually isn't going to be uh, implemented right away. It's supposedly on pause and allegedly because the board's director, Nina Jankowitz, was, uh, according to this article, resigned following an unrelenting stream of harassment. Now, I got to say that, you know, information and disinformation, I suppose, is in the eye of the beholder, because I don't think that people were harassing Jankowitz. I think they were just bringing up her terrible record. But what what's going on with the disinformation board and who's going to run it now, Chris? 
Well, it remains to be seen as of this morning. Uh, we found out last Wednesday, first thing, that the board was put on pause. Nina Jankowitz had resigned. Uh, I mean, yeah, people were certainly, you know, some people were being nasty uh, on Twitter, as is the case if you are a woman on the Internet, and there's no excuse for that. But you're right. People were also pointing out uh Jankowitz's connections to, uh, you know, to the State Department um, through a company that she had worked with called Stop Fake, and the founder of Stop Fake was very involved with the Atlantic Council, which, as we know, is a who's who of NATO. In fact, that founder had written uh, a piece uh, before the conflict in Ukraine most recently flared up in February, calling for further sanctions on Russia, and, and he had posted that piece in January. So people were rightly calling out these issues. And I think much of the, the liberal media uh, was point was was looking at this and saying, well, Nina Jankowitz is a high level woman. She's written about and dealt, you know, and dealt with harassment online before. And in fact, yes, she does have a book about it. And so therefore, we have to defend her and this board and that kind of identity politics based perspective on how to look at a disinformation governing board really just removed any type of criticism that anyone uh, would, you know, could bring any civil libertarian who tried to, you know, con confirm and clear up what this board was actually going to do was shut down as, you know, a, a sexist and a right winger, which was just absolutely not true. Well, the whole rollout of the board, though, even forgetting Jankowitz, the whole role of the uh, rollout of the board was just an absolute mess. There was no information, really, from the Department of Homeland Security about what the governing process would be, what the structure would be, and what specifically it would do outside of some very vague uh, wording about how it, they were going to use this board in order to give direction to other DHS agencies in order to prevent misinformation or to share what they believe is information. So I'm glad it's on pause. I would certainly hope that it doesn't come back again. But unfortunately, I think we have seen that, you know, without people continuing to push back in an honest and, you know, good way, uh, the, you know, this is going to come back in some other form. It's where things, you know, certainly have been going. So I think this board being uh, being paused for now, it's a good thing. It was certainly bungled from DHS, at the, you know, from the outset. Uh, but we really need to keep an eye on it and and prevent, you know, make sure that it, there's no version two of it. Yeah, and I feel like there's a connection between this disinformation board and the uh, misinformation policy of Twitter, Chris. Because I mean, looking at the Twitter situation, I mean, to me, it feels like just another example of big tech basically collaborating with the state um, to ensure censorship. And this disinformation board is sort of like an official sanctioned uh, censorship department, if you will. You know what I mean? And I just feel like it really uh, uh, sort of spells a, a worrisome uh, sort of reality for us here in the U.S. in uh, uh, the 21st century, even as Washington is always sort of accusing other countries and other governments of, you know, repressing information and not being allowed a free press. Well, here in the U.S., our press is is functionally controlled by billionaires and, and the wealthy. And this is who controls the information that we see. And this is also who empowers these uh, tech companies to act as the gatekeepers for what is true and untrue. 
And, you know, to me, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, these cats have proven that they can establish and operate extremely lucrative social media websites. That does not mean that I trust them to tell me what news is legitimate and illegitimate. And so I feel like this is all part and parcel of a broader issue of, uh, frankly, trying to keep any sort of um, divergent opinion, certainly any anti-war, anti-imperialist uh, opinion from, you know, reaching mass consciousness here in the U.S. Right. Look, what did, what did you know, Karl Marx tell us, right, that the, the government, the presidency and all of that, those, those high positions, they are effectively the management of the capitalist class, right? They do the bidding and do the work to keep a system running. And, you know, so Twitter is able to, you know, they, and they have this symbiotic relationship, Twitter, Facebook, all of these companies, the social media platforms, Reddit, they they work with the government and the government suggests things to them and they tell the government, well, this will be good for our bottom line. And so they have this symbiotic relationship, but ultimately what is benefited is the bottom line and the pockets of the, the investors and the CEOs who then turn around and make sure that they are taking care of you know the presidents and senators and lobbyists who are doing their bidding. So no, I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. I don't trust anyone at Twitter to be making a choice about what is or is not, uh, you know, information or misinformation. That should be up to the people who are using these services right now. And ultimately, it should be up to the people who use these services to run them and to say, you know what, we are not going to violate, you know, shut down this type of content because it is for the public good. But, you know, we're also against this other, you know, just straight up racist, sexist, homophobic stuff, um, you know, but that should be run by the people with people's councils governing how these social media platforms that have turned into the new public square are run. Definitely. And it's so it's so appropriate that you um, reference Karl Marx. I mean, Marx also talked about how, you know, the dominant ideas of any society are that of its ruling class. And so not only these policies, this department, but the narratives that we see flowing from uh, the government, the corporate owned media, really from uh, the state apparatus itself is all designed to protect a particular set of class interests, ruling class interests. And so for the rest of us, I think we should be paying close attention to that and understanding that the messaging that we're receiving, we're being told it's for our benefit. But in truth, it's all part of an effort to keep us from organizing for what rightly belongs to us. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank Chris Garoppa so much for joining us today. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call. Live it by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time today. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave that's mave.digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kalanji Jamachanga. Author, filmmaker, community organizer, co-host of the Renegade Culture podcast, co-founder of Black Power Media, and founder of the FTP movement. Kalanji, thanks so much for coming on, brother. Hey, what's happening? It's honored to be on here today with good people. Uh, if by any means necessary, how y'all feeling? Hey, man, everything's cool. Everything's cool. And you know, uh, Kalanji, uh, one of the victims of the racist terror attack in Buffalo, New York, 72-year-old Kat Massey um, has been laid to rest. And, you know, I was actually just telling Jackie off the air, it really seems like the shooting has fallen out of the news already. I mean, it's it, it's pretty uh, uh, wild. And now it could just be me, but it does seem like not that long after the incident, it just doesn't seem to be getting um, the attention that, uh, frankly, it deserves or that you would imagine with uh, something like a mass shooting. Now, I don't know if that's a sign of, you know, the U.S. getting accustomed to these terrorist sacks or what have you. Um, but I know that uh, you and your organizing work actually uh, uh, have been able to be able to uh, work with and communicate with one of the families of one of the victims of the shooting. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down some of uh, uh, what's been been happening there and how things have been unfolding from the attack up until this point. Sure. Um, and, and we've actually, for the record, we've been in, in, in contact with uh, uh, Kathy, Kathy Massey's uh, family as well. Uh, we actually had mm. uh, her niece on on uh, BPM along with the uh, niece of, uh, or two of the nieces of uh, Jerry Talley as well. So, um, you know, to, to your point regarding the, uh, the, the media's attempt to dismiss and to uh, rush this story on, for lack of better words, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a political move. And I think that, uh, you know, as, as, as other folks have pointed out, you know, you had folks talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock for 
I mean, right. that would never end. You know what I'm saying? And, and here it is. This situation isn't even two weeks old. And, you know, and, and, and people are just uh, being buried. And it's like, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, it's uh, let's rush this along. Let's not make it a quote unquote racial issue. And let's move on to the next step. Um, for, to my understanding, I know that uh, the, the families have been suffering because of the fact that it's, um, you know, in, in many cases, they're still getting copies of the videos sent. Um, they've been trying to get Facebook and other platforms to take the videos down. And I know that uh, there was a complaint a couple of days ago where uh, a friend of mine who is uh, the niece of Ms. Tally, she she called me. She's like, man, is there any way that we can, you know, get some attorneys to, um, of community standards? You know, which is insane when you have the shooter, you know, taping and, and walking through, you know, uh, shooting people. And, you know, it's like it's not a violation of community standards. What type of community do we live in? That's the question. Um, so, so yeah, man, it, I mean, it's, it's a lot going on. And, of course, we know that this is, you know, it, it is business as usual in America. We're talking about close to 200 mass shootings this year alone and close to 700 last year. And, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal. It's like in the news, out the news and, and, and keep it moving. Yeah. And, you know, every time one of these kinds of heinous racist acts happen, um, I, I shouldn't say that they don't happen, are committed by racist people. You know, we don't get the same kind of discourse in the media when racists kill people, when homophobes kill people, as when, you know, other kinds of violence occurs. Like we don't we don't get the conversation in the media about where, you know, where where this 18 year old's parents were. What kind of family did he come from? Right. Like what was his upbringing? We don't get an examination into the dysfunction of this person's life that, you know, could have clearly created such a monster that, you know, Kalanji, we always hear when the conversation is turned to the quote unquote uh, black on black crime, like, right? Like whenever we talk about these issues of racist violence against our people, there's always somebody who comes with black on black crime. And in that conversation, it's, you know, dysfunctional families and fathers not in the home. And how come we don't have these kind of conversations about these kinds of folks and what kind of parents create these kinds of people, Kalanji? Not only that, and I, and I, I absolutely agree with you on it. Um, the reason reason being uh, is because clearly they are they have a certain complexion and a certain youth, right? Uh, these same eighteen uh, year olds be sent to murder folks in Afghanistan. They sent to murder folks in Somalia and 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 Iraq and so many other different places. These are you know these are those same eighteen year olds that the U.S. military allows into. Their, their various branches. But not only that, I, I, you know, we, we talk about um, the differences in, in effects and crime and, 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 and terror. I can recall back in uh, October of 2017 when uh, uh, Stephen Paddock opened fire on the, uh, the folks at the uh, Route 91 Harvest Festival. Uh, from his 32nd floor hotel room. I remember, you know, there was all types of uh, 
flags flying half mast. There was all types of, you know, America was sad. It was so much suffering and so much pain. Why? Because those particular individuals, that was a, a, a country concert, right? It, it had nothing to do with black folks. But when black folks die, there's excuses that are made. You know, they're like, well, you know, he was young. His his brain wasn't quite developed. And, you know, all type of other nonsense that, that, that we know is nonsense. But it's all about who's being murdered and who's who's pulling the trigger. You know, I mean, this boy, you know, and, and we're making excuses for him. I mean, I talked to a few different folks and they're like, man, you know, you know, we, you know, it's not about black through girls. Yes. I'm sorry. I know folks who are like, well, it's not really about race. I said, if it's not about race, then why is it that he traveled three hours, uh, 200 miles to murder these folks in, in what we call a soft target? This is a, 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 a young man who was dressed and prepared for war. I mean, he had level three uh, um, uh, armor on, body armor, to make sure that he didn't die. And, 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 and just the way that he was escorted out. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it's sickening. Not that we don't expect that, because we're clear about who and what we're dealing with. But it's just, it's outrageous from time and time and time again that we have to keep on repeating the same story, changing the names, and, 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 and it's supposed to be business as usual until the next situation takes place. You know, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, issuing a call to our people to say, listen, you know, this isn't the first time and it won't be the last, but we have to be prepared for situations like this. We can't talk about fighting the police, quote-unquote, fighting police terrorism, when you can have a one, uh, a lone gunman walk into a supermarket and murder 10 people in broad daylight. You know, so, so what are we up against? We have to figure out how do we um, advance past being a moving target because we're like, we're like, 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 like deers being hunted. You know, we just, we're just looking at the barrel of the gun, looking dumbfounded, waiting to be slaughtered. And you know, Kalanji, what you're describing vexes me to no end. Because what do you mean it's it's not about race? I mean, this was a guy who, and, and on that body armor that you were describing was a black sun Nazi symbol. Uh, not to mention the fact that we know that uh, he specifically scouted out an area that had uh, a lot of black people in it so that he could kill as many black people as possible. And then we know from his uh, manifesto that this is someone who out of, uh, I believe he called it out of extreme boredom, found his way to these, you know, racist uh, forums on sites like 4chan and Reddit and things like that. We know that he believed in, you know, the, the great replacement theory. I mean, that same manifesto. I mean, it's it's kind of. It's your pretty standard, like racist, anti-Semitic uh, kind of conspiracy-driven sort of thing that fuels uh, uh, the kind of racism that leads to just these kinds of attacks. And you know, if you sort of follow the history of the white supremacist movement in the United States, <clears throat> which has taken different forms and different names, but at a certain point, they actually adopted a strategy. Not unlike uh, some jihadist terrorists in the sense that, you know, they 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 would encourage people to basically uh, to go out and do 
um, you know, these attacks all by themselves, even if they're not actually technically a part of an organization, which the Buffalo shooter was not. He was not, you know, at least according to his own account, he was not formally a part of any group, though he supported uh, uh, several by his own descriptions. And so I just don't understand this impulse to make a racist terror attack about anything other than white supremacy. And matter of fact, I should also mention, and as we pointed on the show and many others, others have that same symbol that he has on his chest is one of the same symbols that's wore by these Nazi ultranationalist far right militias in Ukraine that are getting tens of billions of dollars in weapons and assistance from the United States. And so it's like people just don't want to grapple with that pure fact. I mean, I don't know if people just don't want to try to uh, um, process it because it's just so uh, tragic, which it really is. But uh, and I don't know if there's just a straight up fear. I don't know if, if, if this if we see sometimes a deliberate attempt to downplay the blatant white supremacy that's in our eyes because it has too many implications for too many other things. I mean, I don't know how you see it, Kalanji, but I, I, folks need to be clear that we'll never be able to not only even understand because I feel like there's even too much emphasis on quote unquote understand. He was a racist. What is there to understand? Right. I, you know, I don't get that. We all want to play uh, 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 some guy shrink after he shoots up a bunch of black people. Right. But more importantly, we won't understand or be able to organize to combat the rising tide of fascist violence until we see this for what it is. So what do you think it is that just keeps people always uh, uh, I'm going to just say stuck on stupid when it comes to this issue. And I'm not trying to be mean, but all I'm saying is there's this uh, strange thing that happens when, when, when these kinds of incidents um, go, go down to where, you know, folks act like they don't know which way is up. And like I say, I'm sure a part of it is just being kind of disoriented from the act itself, but I can't help but feel like there's something else at play here. Yeah. I, I think it's fear, mass and ignorance. You know what I'm saying? I, I think that, you know, it, it is a choice. It's like, you know, it's it's like fight or flight. They're going to choose to 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 uh, to to flee every time because when you know there is accountability, when you know there's responsibility, and 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 it is it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing for people when you can't send or you are an eighty seven year old who lived a lived a. a a right life it lived to an old age, a 72-year-old who is, you know, uh, Matt, uh, uh, Mama Catherine Matthew is, is, a, is a year older than my mother. You know what I'm saying? So when, when, when they can't go to church, when they can't go to the supermarket because of the fact that we don't have an apparatus to defend or protect them, we can no longer talk about we need to stop police terrorism. We can't stop one white boy. One 18-year-old white boy who, for all practical purposes, I mean, you saw him coming a mile away. He got started outside. And I'm not blaming the victims. Let's be clear about that. But for those of us who have all of these solutions, because I keep seeing, and it's burning me up, I'm not going to lie. I keep seeing all of these forums. Every time the, our, our people are murdered, here comes another forum. Here comes another lecture. Here comes another. See, what we need to do, get in the community and show us how to do it. You know what I'm saying? Everything has to be, I'm not satisfied with, 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 with just protesting. Let's be practical. Let's be practical. How can you be proactive? Defend the community in the best way you possibly can. 
Stop collecting money. Stop collecting collecting donations. Stop putting everything on Facebook and Instagram and all of this other stuff to say, look what I'm doing, when in fact you're doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. But but furthering uh, 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 confusion. Because the problem is there's so many people talking, but not enough people have solutions. And instead of just outright saying that, look, I really don't know what to do. You you make up all of this whole bunch of fluff and you spin around in circles and jump up and down, do backflips, uh, give this elaborate speech. And what happens? Someone else is murdered before the night. Though. And what do we do? We're not going to take it no more. Okay, you don't have to take it. They're just going to deliver it. So you don't have to receive this package, but you're going to get it one way or another. You know what I mean? So what we're doing, our efforts, we're saying, look, you know, if we can't catch them beforehand, at least, you know, make the families feel safe. You understand what I'm saying? Be, be on, on hand. Because, because the, the thing is, what folks don't realize is that after an attack like this, it's not just like, okay, you know, everybody's marching and we're with you. And, and I hear all these people that, that are in Buffalo that didn't have anything to do with the shooting or whatever. It's like, you know, we need healing. We need this. And the Buffalo Bills coming out, feeding some folks and all that. But they don't know what to do with the families besides trot them out in front of the media. You know, and I spoke to the families. And, 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 and speaking to them, there's still a sense of fear. We're headed to Buffalo uh, to provide a, a, a safe presence during the funeral services, not to polls, not to stand there uh, with, with some guns like some of these other clowns, you know, just looking apart. We, we're not going in uniform. We will be there to make sure that our people are safe and that that could, because they're attacking soft targets. You know what I'm saying? If you look at all these different mass shootings, they are soft targets. They're not going to where the people that are going to give them resistance to that. That, that boy knew. He knew Buffalo. He knew that this particular spot right here, this is a, a prime location. He didn't go into the hood. I don't care how much armor he had on. You know what I'm saying? Because of the fact that he'd be challenged. And cowards don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be challenged. So he came with level three armor, and he came with all this artillery. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, on the other side of town, there's some rappers having some rap beats, jumping another artist. Since the Buffalo situation went down, there's still black folks still murdering each other because it's easy. It's easy to attack those who look like you out of frustration and pain. But see, as, as our comrade Deruba would say, until there's pain on both sides, then it'd be an imbalance. And we'll continue to move the way we're moving. The problem is there's no, it's, it's not an equal distribution of pain. Yeah. I mean, I, I so agree about the point you make about cowardice. I mean, it's just like Dylan Roof, you know, choosing to uh, carry out a shooting in, in a church full of praying people. I mean, you know, a church, a, a grocery store. I mean, these are, you know, people people are not coming, uh, you know, loaded for bear or ready for war when they do these very basic things. And I think that that's sort of uh, precisely the point in terms of instilling fear and uh, really uh, uh, creating an environment of terror in these communities where these things uh, happen. And, you know, Jackie, as Kalanji was talking, I was thinking that I think an aspect of this in the way that people tend to respond to incidents like these, I think a lot of times it emanates from feelings of powerlessness. I, I really do. I think, which is understandable, because in situations like that, you know, you see it, you're, you're shocked, 
and all these uh, uh, sorts of things. But ultimately, you don't think that you could do anything in response uh, either to that situation or even something that might happen to you. Because that's that's always a thought. I mean, you know, I think people always and I think this is also the point of these terror attacks is, is to um, create this sense of vulnerability. Like you're not safe wherever you go. If you're praying, if you're shopping, this could happen to you, too. But see, this, I think, is the power of organizing, because when you're in an organization, when you're in a movement, you are not alone. You are not isolated. You have support. And it is within that context that we can really begin to put together these efforts to try to make sure that not only incidents like this specifically don't happen anymore, but to beat back the rising tide of violent fascism in the United States itself. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kalanji Jama Changa. And, you know, Kalanji, I was thinking over the break about the racialized nature of the, the aftermath of the shooting, not even talking about the shooting itself, which was obviously racist. And what I mean is, is that in moments like these, whether we're talking about a racist terror attack, whether we're talking about an instance of um, racist police terror, it seems that the only emotion that is considered uh, appropriate from the black people who are victims of this are, you know, forgiveness and all these sorts of things. It's like uh, it's almost like this feeling like uh, we're not supposed to be angry or we're not supposed to, uh, you know, really sort of uh, understand and organize about what we can do to stop this sort of thing. And, and this connects directly to what you were discussing in terms of, you know, trotting families out in front of the public and things like that. But I just I always think about that. Like these are these are people who are grieving. You know what I mean? This is not just a, a news story to them. They lost someone that they love in a horribly tragic way that no one should have to experience. I can't I can't imagine going through something like that and having a bunch of cameras stuck in my face and bulbs flashing and. All these kinds of things and people I don't even know talking about what I should be thinking and doing. Like, I just, you know, it, it, it's a nasty, nasty business. But it seems as though from the standpoint of the state, that is preferable to the alternative. Right. And you mentioned Daruba uh, bin Wahad a moment ago. And that made me think about um, how the Black Panthers were a part of that uh Oh, what was it? Was it the United Front Against Fascism? 
uh, it, it was some uh, anti-fascist group that they were a part of back during that period. And so they were very clear and they, they were very clear about what fascism was, how it shows up and what has to be done to combat it. You know what I mean? But it, it just feels like these things play out publicly the same way every time. And I have to think, Kalanji, that there's that number one, I have to think that that's not a coincidence. And number two, I can't help but feel that there's a pronounced political aspect to that as well, you know? Oh, right on. You know, it, it's funny you say that because um, we had a situation last week. One of the uh, the family members called me up. Uh, she was like, hey, um, CNN wants to interview me. And I'm like, okay, cool. She said, um, you know, I asked them, can I bring you on? And I told them I wanted to bring you on with me. And they, they said, okay, all right. Um, asked for my name and everything. And she said, uh, she called me back 15 minutes before we were supposed to go live. And she says, you know what these MFers say to me? I said, what did they say? She said, they didn't know that Kalanji Changa was so militant. And they said that uh, if they have me on, they might as well have Tucker Carlson on. Whoa. What? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't say that. <laughs> and listen, they didn't say to me, of course. <laughs> so she 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 dug in her chest because she she's no sucker. Like I said, I've been on her for almost twenty years, and she said um, she said he he's for all people. And then she she said that they um they they turn around and say, well, you know, well for this particular show, you know, we want it to be about family. We don't want it to really be hardcore and all that. I'm saying all that to say, and like I told her, I said, listen, the fact is. They want to control the narrative from beginning to end. They want to tell you how to grieve, who to grieve with, how to respond, when to grieve, when to stop grieving. And as you talked about earlier, even when it, when, the, when the cutoff time is, when it's time to stop pushing the propaganda. You understand what I'm saying? So they wanted this to be a smooth transition. They didn't want folks like us to come rattle, ruffle the feathers because of the fact that you might spark something in someone that might cause them to rebel. You know, they want to keep it calm. They wanted to, they told them they just wanted the families to come on and tell them about their aunts. And she said, look, I don't want to talk about how I feel about my aunt. My aunt already knew how I felt about it. Mm. And, and my family already know how I feel about my aunt. She said, "We, I want to talk about justice. You know what I mean? So, you know, she was like, man, I don't even feel like doing the interview. I said, no, do the interview, but say what it is that you want to say. Right. That you need to say. I said, they're going to they're gonna have their producers try to chop it up and all that type stuff. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, get it out there. Let it do what it do. And, you know, so I posted this. You know, I tweeted it. And, um, you know, a couple people was like, well, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you can uh, force CNN to whatever. I said, listen, I've been on CNN several times. The fact is, it's the context. They want you on there at certain times. They want you on there when you're talking about certain things or whatever because it's safe for all subjects. But with this particular situation here, you know, we're not talking about, you know, uh, let's blame the victim. We're saying that this is an outrage and that someone besides this killer has to be held accountable. You know what I mean? And, and whoever it is, it has to trickle down. And I'm willing to bet. Just on the way this is being played out right now, we're going to find out it's a little deeper than what it appears to be right now. Mm. Guaranteeing you, somewhere down the line, and, 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 and I predict soon, we're going to find out that there's some connections to some people that don't necessarily want you to know that that connection existed. Mm. Yeah, and what you just described, um, 
and that that sister's response is is so beautiful to me. I mean, that th- this is the kind of clarity that comes from uh, people from the grassroots. They're not interested in all that fluff. They can't be, you know, filtered by the desires of corporate owned media or the nonprofit industrial complex or any of these uh, sorts of things. She wanted to she wanted to talk about the real issue at hand. She wanted to get straight to it. Mm-hmm. Right. And see that that is it, that, that is the real value to me when we talk about uh, organizing and really doing this kind of political work. These are the elements that we should really be uh, working with if we want to really make some shake. But we have a caller on the line here. Ingrid, tell us what's on your mind. Well, hey, that was a great conversation. And they also want to tell you who you can grieve for, like, for instance, not the 14,000 uh, East Ukrainians right. that were killed prior to prior to this current conflict. But what I wanted to talk about was the disinformation board I have heard that Michael Chertoff has been named to replace Nina Jankowitz. Yeah. And maybe you'll be able to confirm if that's true or not, but that would be um, equally sinister choice. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks a lot for calling in Ingrid. I mean, I've, I've also seen that like floating around social media. I have not seen it confirmed though. And uh, I think either way, Um, you know, and we were actually talking about this earlier on the show in our Tech for the People segment about how even though, you know, Nina Jankowitz had to resign because there was such an outcry about it, which I just I think it just says a lot about the whole disinformation board piece, a ministry of truth. That's what it is. You know what I mean? It might as well just call it that. That's what it is. Like, I feel like I feel like that very thing, the fact that there was so much pressure and people on, on, you know, different platforms were exposing her history and things like that. I feel like that shows people that this thing shouldn't exist. But, you know, like, like you know, we've been saying, Jackie, it's quite likely that, you know what I'm saying, it will return in some other mm-hmm. form. And whether it's, you know, Michael Shertoffer or somebody else, that it will absolutely function in the same way as the sort of official uh, propaganda and censorship department of the U.S. government. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely will. And and But let's be clear, though. I mean, just because the U.S. government formally has established this, you know, their little <laughs> Orwellian ministry of truth. I just think it's really funny that, like, one of the things from one of my favorite favorite dystopian novels of all time is actually coming true. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's funny. Wait, but what's the novel? Uh, 1984. Oh, okay. You literally meant Orwellian. <laughs> no, I, got you. I, I literally meant Orwellian. I, I mean, and 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 it's just. It's like, dang it, man, art imitates life, imitates art, and and these people can't help it. But honestly, the government creating this this disinformation board, it's just a formalization of everything the media has always been doing, right? Because, Kalanji, what you just said about what the the CNN person told uh, the relative of the uh, slain family, of their slain family member, about if they have you on, they might as well have Tucker Carlson on. Let's break that down a bit because that is lit. These people, CNN now, the supposed liberal outlet, literally saying that a black person who struggles 
for the liberation of their people is the ideological equivalent Mm. of racist Tucker Carlson. That's your liberal media for you. Now, I don't think we needed a, a disinformation board to, you know, screw up the truth like CNN does on a regular. But I just think that was just, you know, the government finally taking the last step in and honestly becoming Big Brother almost with the, with the exceptions of the screens in your room that wake you up and tell you how many, you know, jumping jacks and pushups to do. You know, if it gets that far, I'm leaving that day because <laughs> I ain't getting up and doing all that. But I mean, the, the corporate media is is guilty of twisting the truth and misinforming the public. And and I won't say always has been, but in my lifetime, and I'm sure in yours, Kalanji, we've seen the lies become more prominent and brazen in the U.S. media, uh, both liberal and so-called, you know, right wing, where you not only can't tell one from the other, but you tell that they're all lying by when they're literally on the air. Right. I, I think the thing, too, we have to always remember that regardless of what situation and what media outlet we're talking to or we're speaking with, we're still black in America. You know what I mean? We, we're still uh, um, not going along with the status quo. It, it's funny because I, I did another interview and they was talking about, um, you know, they, they asked me about my thought on guns. And, you know, I said that everyone should have one, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm pro Second Amendment, whatever. Well, don't you think that's dangerous, so on and so forth? I said, you know, it's, it's really wild that when when white folks talk about guns, it's automatically Second Amendment. When black folks talk about guns, then they're militant. Because ultimately, that's what they were saying, that I was too militant. You understand? So, you know, it, it, it it's just, um, you know, understanding what we're up against. And some folks, for some reason, they think that it's a difference between a Fox and a CNN. It's the same thing. It's just like uh, it's like uh, um, it's like outright rape, or you trying to uh, uh, you know talk them into it or some craziness. You know what I mean? A, a pill situation. You know, it's the same program. It's the same killing fields. It's the same system. It's the same propaganda arm of the establishment. And until we understand that you know, then we'll be lost in the handbasket, man. But, you know, we're, we're clear, and that's why I'm grateful that we have outlets like By Any Means Necessary and Sputnik and, and Black Power Media and so on and so forth, because we have the opportunity to, to, to set the record straight. But we have to be clear of their running dogs as well, because one of the cats that hopped on a, on a, uh, on a thread was uh, the ascot-wearing mascot. Oh, no. Roland Martin. Oh, no. <laughs> he was quick to say... Tell me who works for CNN and who don't work for CNN. Like, dude, I'm clear about what's what. I'm not worried about CNN. I'm worried about Negroes like you as well because of the fact that you're doing the bidding for CNN under the guise of black media. Some of this black media is more dangerous than Fox News because they will confuse the people into thinking that everything is level. When in reality, they're looking to level their pockets. Well, you know, that that's true. And... uh and as you were describing that, I was thinking, I thought of two specific instances when you, when you talk about black media. Um, I believe one of the ones I'm thinking of was, uh, what was it? The Black News Network. It like no longer exists. Uh, Buddy started it up. R.I.P. Black it, News. 
Yeah. This one, it existed. Right. <laughs> and, uh, oh, the Black News Channel, I think it was. And I remember they, this was back when um, there were protests in Cuba and the U.S. was going really hard on this uh, campaign for uh, a regime change. And they had a friend of the show, Ajamu Baraka, on with this woman, also black, who, you know, was basically like towing the line of the State Department and, and, and just totally taking uh, the whole situation, the, the you know, uh, the Cuban political situation horribly out of context. I mean, it was a straight up imperialist uh, analysis that she had. And so this is what we mean. Now, granted, she's on there with like a real anti-imperialist. So I guess there's balance. But even still, and, and I'm thinking of another interview with um, that fool Terrell Jermaine Starr on another. Now, I don't remember if this was BNC, but he was at least being interviewed by another black person. And, you know, he's <laughs> doing what he does, just like uh, spreading lies, propping up his his Nazi buddies in Ukraine. And so, you know, all of this gets sort of uh, uh, glossed over a Kalanji when we uh, uh, sort of look how it is. And because it's coming from uh, black people, we think that, it, well, it's all cool and it must be legitimate. But in truth, these are just the same, frankly, ruling class narratives being fed to us by people who happen to look like us. And we're supposed to get rocked to sleep by that. And I think it's a similar situation when you talk about uh, CNN and Fox, because ultimately both of these uh, uh, media platforms, these are corporate owned media platforms who uphold the same class interest, even if their presentation is different. And so instead of, uh, you know, thinking that one is for us and one is against us, we have to understand that they're all against us. I mean, what is the like, what is even the relevance of asking you about guns? What does that have to do with anything? And see, to me, that's directly connected to this broader history in the United States of this fear of black people being armed and organized. That's why it used to be illegal for black people, enslaved or free, to own a weapon in the United States. That's why organizations like the Black Panthers and other uh, militant organizations and people like Malcolm X, who didn't walk around brandishing a gun, but who always advocated for self-defense, which everybody should be entitled to. There's a reason why uh, uh, they got the response that they did from mainstream society and from uh, uh, white America. There is just this deep, just intrinsic terror of the idea of uh, armed and, and organized black people, even if it is to fend off uh, white racist attacks, as we've done all throughout the years. We can also look at uh, groups like the Deacons for Defense, you know, who literally were in place as an armed guard for a nonviolent civil rights protest. So Little this is church deacons. Right. You know, so this is in our blood, man. And to me, it's insulting to even raise that. And also, I don't know, whenever people talk about guns in the United States, it's like, yo, man, there's already more guns than people in this country. So I, I just I, I don't even know what reality we're even moving from sometimes. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252113201320 I am here Jackie Lukeman is here Kalanji Jama Changa is here and uh shout out to the by any means necessary chat Jam though uh said they always trying to equate our righteous anger with right wing hate you are absolutely correct and I think that that uh says a lot about uh, the orientation of this country in general um Kalanji I wanted to make uh something of a pivot here just because <laughs> I had to get your uh, opinion on this. And I actually think there's some relevance here to uh, some of the broader uh, uh, themes of our conversation this hour. This whole issue of the Juneteenth ice cream, right? Uh, Of course, we got Juneteenth coming up next month. And this would be, was it just last year or was uh, made into a federal holiday? Um, It ain't been that long. Yeah, yeah, I think it was just, and, and I feel like they announced it like, a couple of days before. So, I mean, yeah, it's I, like, I, hey, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> Don't revolt. We made Juneteenth a national holiday. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, well, should we have to day off then or something? Like, <laughs> you know, but, you know, either way, there's this ice cream that Walmart store brand, Great Value, has uh, come out with. It's a celebration edition <laughs> Juneteenth ice cream. And I believe it's a red velvet ice cream. That's the flavor. And uh, they got some pushback, you know, they got some pushback from people about the ice cream because people, I think, I think people are generally frustrated with um, the uh, uh, commodification of the uh, holiday and things like this. And so uh, a Walmart spokesperson released a statement saying, quote, Juneteenth holiday marks a celebration of freedom and independence. However, We received feedback that a few items caused concern for our customers and we sincerely apologize. We are reviewing our assortment and will remove items as appropriate. First of all, let me say this. I'm not saying that I would buy this Juneteenth ice cream. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if somebody happened to have it, and I was in the spot. <laughs> I might get a spoonful. T- I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know. I mean, it's red velvet ice yeah, cream. Yeah, like I've had that before. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't liberation thing, but it was uh, red velvet ice cream. You feel me? And there's another thing. Like, I understand people's frustration, but y'all, this is what happens to holidays under a capitalist system. This is the same country that every year literally has a Martin Luther King mattress sale. Every January, there's an MLK mattress sale. You know? We see the same thing on other holidays as well. You know, companies are always looking to make a buck somehow from a holiday. They know people are glad to get a day off. You know, they're feeling maybe their you know wallets are feeling a little loose. They want to spend a little money. That's how it is, you know, for me. So while I understand the frustration, I think also we should be clear that this would happen under uh, uh, any uh, situation. But just generally curious your thoughts of this whole deal, Kalanji. Um. You know, I think that if uh, with all the exploitive uh, uh, practices that Walmart has has uh, has been consistent with, if they're going to give us anything, I would say reparations. Let's talk about that. Mm. You know, what I'm saying we don't we don't want no damn ice cream. But the, the <laughs> thing is, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even uh, you know we 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 you mentioned capitalism. Capitalism 
is, is a unique system because it will take your pain, it will take your suffering, it will take your your protest, it will take your victories, and it will package it and sell it back to you. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And and we will buy it. Now, the only thing I would disagree with you on is you said you would take a spoon and taste it. Anything that's only made for black people by white people, damn sure not taste it. Because Come on, man. How are you, you going to dunk on a red velvet like that, though? Hey, look here, man. That, that red velvet might, that red might be actual blood for <laughs> <my> people. <laughs> Can't trust it. <laughs> <laughs> only you, Kalaji. <laughs> I ain't even about to consider. Because, I mean, just, just from the past, all the stuff they made for us, Crazy Horse, Cisco, all that type stuff. You know, oh, wow. okay. oh, you had to bring up Cisco, didn't you? That's just a real bad flashback right there. I'm sorry. You know, the 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 uh, the, the, the Jewish community drinks Manischewitz as far as, you know, mm-hmm. for, for their joint. And what did they give us? MD 2020. Folks don't even know that it's the same company. Mm-hmm. MD is the same company. It's not it's not it's not a, a different company. It's the same people that own own the same wine. One is kosher and one is not. You understand? But, you know, we take whatever they give us and we accept it and we make a way out of no way. They give us pig guts and we take it and we survive off it. So, hey, man, I guess a little bit of red, red velvet ice cream for Juneteenth won't hurt, huh? I tell you what, I'm glad we ain't got to survive off chitlins no more because they're disgusting. They're, they're disgusting. They are gross. My dad, a, fr- a close friend of the family, God rest her soul, used to make some for my dad every New Year. And every, when he would microwave it, it would stink up the house. And everything you put in that microwave is going to smell like chitlins for days. Hated it. I'm so glad he started caring about his health and cut that stuff off. But you were talking about MD 2020 and all that, uh, Kalanji. I'm going to take you back. Do you remember the St. Ives commercials with Nate Dogg and them and Snoop Dogg? Walking to the liquor store, you know what I'm looking for, St. Ives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, you know, who did they sell it to? The malt liquor came to us. Right. You know what I mean? The whole the whole gin and juice thing. I talked about this on uh, on, on 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 some show the other day. I don't even remember. But uh, <laughs> we were talking about um, just the fact that with with with, with Snoop Dogg with the whole coming out with the song Gin and Juice, he was signed to Interscope, and Interscope was owned by uh, the by Sequels, the folks who own Sequels. You know what I mean? And they also own Dole and Tropicana, and uh, I forget what other juice it is. But so the Gin and Juice was a straight up commercial to help their profit margin. And we fall for everything. We don't even look deep. And, and, and like I said, these, these, are, these are simple things that you can research. You don't even have, it doesn't require any deep research. You know what I mean? And we look at things as, oh, it must be a conspiracy theory. No, it's not a conspiracy theory. Just look it up. Just look it up. You know, so, hey, man, we, we, we get what we get. We get what we deserve. Um, you know, Walmart, we supposed to boycott Walmart years ago. But <laughs> That's for real. June, Clean now, so. Well, here's, here's the thing, Kalanji, because you mentioned gin and juice. I understand everything you're saying, but here's my counterpoint. The song is hard. It's, it's a it's a hip hop classic at this point. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I loved it. You see Snoop Dogg sitting on the uh, uh, handlebars of the bike, his homeboy driving him around. He was the coolest dude I had ever seen. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, even from the Dre Day video, when it got to the party, he's like, bow, wow, wow. And it's like, and like the party immediately got started when like he started rapping. And like, I thought that he single-handedly did that. But what do we do about the fact that the song is good, Kalanji? Well, I mean, the thing is, again, packaging our pain. You know what I mean? We always, they, they all, we always make, we take 
something bad and we turn it into something that 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 feels good. You know what I mean? No matter where we are, even music we'll, we'll we'll create the blues. We'll be sitting suffering in pain, gospel songs, whatever. We we will take our pain and we will turn it into some form of pleasure. But the reality is, at the end of the day, we gotta look deeper at it. Um, you know, I stopped my messing with Snoop Dogg when uh, uh, for several reasons. But I remember seeing him in uh, the game. First of all, you got one cat that calls himself a dog and another one the game. But that's neither here nor there. They're grown men. Um, I remember seeing them protesting protesting a, uh, a police department out in L.A. They marched to the police department with the people. And next thing you know, they have the concert with the police. They all dance. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> I'm like, man, the Negroes are out of control. Whenever Martha Stewart feels safe with a Negro, <laughs> even with that, 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 that's another thing about capitalism. White folks are so cold that she went to jail with the prison folks like, oh, man, it's over for Martha. Nah, reinvent her. Put her with a rapper. She good. Yeah, now Martha Stewart has street credit. She got more street credit than some of the folks on Black Pop Media. <laughs> <laughs> she sure got more street credit than me. That's That's for sure. But, I mean, you know, when I look at this whole thing, uh, about about the way that I'm, I like the way you said that, Kalanji, the way our pain is marketed to us, is commodified, is packaged, and is sold back to us on sale, <laughs> on an MLK Day sale, you know, on a Juneteenth sale. I mean, it, it's, it's not that, the, the offense is not necessarily that it's Walmart. That is a part of the offense, of course, you know, with their labor exploitative practices. And it's not necessarily that they are capitalizing off of a holiday. Like you said, Sean, everybody does that. But it's the fact that they have done this to capitalize off of these little bitty, meaningless, politicalish sort of concessions given to marginalized groups of people. They did it with the pride because, yes, they have a pride flavor, ice cream. Yeah. yeah. And then they did it with the black folks with the Juneteenth flavor flavor. I guess they figured having an MLK Day flavor was a bridge too far and they were happy that they could, you know, get away with the Juneteenth flavor. Hey, that's a celebration, you know. But that's a missed opportunity because Martin Luther King had a dream. You could have dream cream. Shut up, Sean. Hey, I'm just saying. I'm just they left money on the table. That's all I'm saying, Jackie. They shouldn't do it. They shouldn't have done. I'm glad they didn't, but I'm just saying. They missed the bag. See what I mean? <laughs> Out of, uh, of, of, of Radio Sputnik, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but about it, you know, because you all keep saying about changing the holidays. Every of the year, there's a holiday designed for sales. Name one holiday. I mean, excuse me, name one month in the year, and I'll show you how capitalism benefits and thrives. That's right. There's not one month throughout the entire year. You know what I mean? Even even in August, back to school. You know what I'm saying? They got a back to school sale. So every month of the year, it's not by coincidence. Oh, Jesus was born in in December. Uh, 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 New Year's happened in January. Uh, uh, President's Day, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day. You know what I'm saying? You can go on and on every single month. It's about capitalism. So they don't have to create nothing to say, okay, this is what we're going to do with a holiday. That's what holiday means in America. It means sales. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and the wild thing is, it's like I'm glad that there was pushback from black folks against, you know, Walmart for their you know, opportunistic little, you know, Juneteenth advertising thing. Because the good thing that happened was that the legit red velvet ice cream, flavored ice cream from a legit black owned company was highlighted. So and, and it's a, a black woman who owns the company. So she gets, you know, the big up for Juneteenth ice cream. The for for what? red velvet ice cream Kalaji. That, that's cream delicious. That, that's the company. Yes. It doesn't have to be for Juneteenth. It can be for every day. And it's fitting to be every for every day in the Lukeman household. I'm fitting to go find some. Um but I mean, it, that that's kind of the good part about it. It's like, all right, we you you don't like that this capitalist, uh, clearly white owned, white family, bunch of racist folks owned, uh, capitalizing off of a black holiday. Now, okay, fine. You you found a black company that you can give your money to. That's wonderful. So I just kind of wonder if we can get that upset and organized and and you know Twitter activated, I guess, about some ice cream. What? Why do we not? Why are we not able to get that kind of activated around, like protecting our people in our neighborhoods, Kalanji? Because it requires real work. It's easy to have Twitter fingers and do a type by. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to walk by and do. A, it's easy to do a type by than a walk by. You know what I'm saying? So you know you don't. You can hide behind your screen. You can talk to chat. You could make some noise, and then you go sit down and have the people that's talking, they're going to look for that ice cream right now. <laughs> they headed to Walmart hoping they didn't sell it all because, like my man Sean said, I just want a spoonful. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, I was also thinking about, because you're talking about how protests and all that even gets repackaged, and when you said that, I immediately thought of um, the Kylie Jenner uh, Pepsi uh, commercial, which I think also got some uh, uh, pushback as well. So there's like some something that is being portrayed as some scuffle, a protest or something. And here comes Kylie Jenner with a Pepsi and and everything's cool after she does that. So all you got to do is drink a little Pepsi and then somehow black lives will matter. And and it's just an odd thing. And it reminds me of uh, I even remember I want to say this was back during the George Floyd uprisings. It's just um, you had these companies like like banks who were putting out these uh, statements supposedly in support of black lives and stuff like that. And they taking pictures kneeling in front of the bank vault and stuff. But some of these same banks and some of these same corporations um, were still contributing to uh, police foundations. You know what I mean? And so, you know, this is this this is just uh, uh, capitalism sort of putting on a show. This is capital protecting itself by pretending to be a part of this spirit of resistance and as if they can somehow uh, feel a part of the millions of people who came into the street in a rebellion against racism, really all out of an attempt to protect their own interest and all the time still giving money to the people who really physically protect their interest in the police. And so we should always be wary of how uh, capital is maneuvering in this way. And I think that a kind of uh, a certain kind of consciousness around that is precisely what prompted the backlash to um, this ice cream. And of course, it's deeper than just the ice cream itself. Right. It's um, a deeper issue about sort of keeping hold to our histories and our traditions of struggle, because that is precisely what Juneteenth is about. Of course, Juneteenth, a part of the broader history of the Civil War, the Civil War that didn't actually take on a revolutionary character until black folks got involved of their own volition, mind you. Right. Because Lincoln didn't want to do it at first. 
So this is what we have to bear in mind as we continue to study and continue to organize. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Kalanji Jamachanga so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.